0: Man, I can't believe Cyclops 616 is dead.
1: Well, it's not like it's the first time. And, I mean, there is a backup. Still, though. Yeah.
0: I think they'll bring him back?
1: Well, sooner or later, sure. Yeah, a lot of people seem to be expecting him to come back as a horseman in Apocalypse Wars.
0: Oh, man, that'd make so much sense. My money would be on war.
1: War is definitely the best thematic fit, but protagonists almost always end up death. So that's where my bet is. You know, unless... What? What? Well, Cyclops has never been a horseman in 616 before.
0: Has he been one in any continuity?
1: Oh yeah, he's famine in the revived Age of Apocalypse. But the thing is, 616 Cyclops does have a history with Sabah Nur.
0: Sure, because of Nathan. And Sinister. And X-Factor in general. No,
1: no, dude. The Twelve.
0: Wasn't his job in the Twelve basically just to represent the power of family?
1: Sure, initially. But he ended up being a wrench in the gears, and he did that in a way that means that if they do bring Cyclops back during Apocalypse Wars, he might come back as something significantly bigger than a horseman.
0: What's bigger than a horseman?
1: Apocalypse. What?! I'm Rachel Editon
0: and I'm Miles Stokes
1: and we are here to explain the X-Men
0: because it's about time someone did
1: welcome to episode 88 of Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men where we walk you through the ins the outs and the retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera.
0: Okay, so here we are with part three of three of Fall of the Mutants, the most happy-go-lucky cheerful crossover of all time. It's
1: so good to be back in the studio, too, because one of the things, because we do this with a backlog that you don't hear, is that there's actually a month gap between recording episode 87 and 88, because we and Kyle were all traveling in different directions for most of November, so we pre-recorded a ton and then just kind of had a month off, and now we're back, and it's really nice. It's... Like, having a workable calendar again, like, without recording, I can no longer keep track of what day of the week it is.
0: There's no structure to our lives, it's just formless void and chaos.
1: Well, you know, one of us has an actual sane office hours job, so you've got that going.
0: Well, it's still formless void and chaos.
1: That's true, you do work in comics.
0: Exactly. Okay, so, yes, we have covered the Uncanny X-Men portion of Fall of the Mutants, we've covered the New Mutants portion... And now we're going to go for X-Factor. Now, Fall of the Mutants, just to remind everyone, we call it a crossover, but it's really not exactly. It's more of a thematic event, kind of like the upcoming Apocalypse Wars event is describing itself, actually. Which means that there are thematically linked stories in each of the three books. And that theme is basically bad things are happening and someone dies or, you know, gets otherwise messed up or something along those lines.
1: Well, all of the X-Men died. They just came back immediately.
0: Right. Which always seemed like sort of a cheat to me. You know, the fall and then immediate rise of the mutants.
1: I feel really good about ending with X-Factor because I think of the stories, theirs is by far and away the most optimistic. It's the one that has the most decisively happy ending.
0: Which is kind of weird because, you know, X-Factor.
1: I know, right? But it's time. They've earned it.
0: They really have. So, okay, let's talk a little bit about what X-Factor has been up to leading up to their chapter of the Fall of the Mutants.
1: Well, way back when, back in, I think, Louis Simonson's first issue, they fought a group called the Alliance of Evil that was being run out of an apparent ski lodge by a shadowy dude named Apocalypse, who at that time was just a large man in a turtleneck and gimp mask.
0: Yes, how far he has come both uh you know in the future and in the past as we'll learn in this episode
1: i still love that he was originally supposed to be the owl Leland like, what the hell even
0: yeah so if you guys have watched the daredevil show he's that kind of funny guy that works with the mob
1: but in the comics he's not he's very very different in the comics and he's much sillier honestly
0: uh, also he coughs up these pallets, and he can turn his head around 360 degrees It's really i'm weird.
1: fairly sure that's not true
0: well it might be Okay, so, X-Factor, right. So, yes, they've been doing their iffy premise for a while now, since the beginning of the book, which is the whole being mutant hunters by day, mutant sort of savior outlaws by night. And they've actually saviored a number of kids. So they've rescued Rusty Collins, Skids, Richter, Boom Boom, Artie, and Leech, all of whom are hanging out in X-Factor headquarters.
1: Along with Caliban, who's originally one of the Morlocks, that has our Leech and Skids. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned that the shaky premise X Factor was pretending to be humans who were mutant hunters that all fell apart around the mutant massacre. Angel was really horribly injured. And Cameron Hodge, who'd been Angel's best friend from way back when, who was co-running X Factor, doing all their PR, who was the one responsible for the whole let's pretend to be mutant hunters thing, ordered Angel's wings to be amputated. Hodge, as it turned out, was a supervillain. He had been basically engineering the fall of X Factor from the start as a complicated revenge plan on Angel for being prettier and having wings. He's now off leading violent human supremacist group the right, whom you may recall we've been talking about in X Factor, but also finally made their way into new mutants in the fall of the mutants.
0: So Angel got really messed up after his wings were amputated and killed himself, which was super sad.
1: Well, apparently killed himself. He decided he had to fly again, uh, went off in a drug addled haze to an airfield, went up in his private plane, which then exploded over the water. We're going to find out that that explosion was, in fact, rigged by Cameron Hodge. And it's been teased for a while that he's coming back, specifically that he's been brought back as Apocalypse's final Horseman, Death, who was ultimately revealed at the end of X-Factor 23.
0: Now, okay. speaking of horsemen, to take a bit of a tangent. So we record about a week out, which means that the X-Men Apocalypse movie trailer came out yesterday. So I kind of feel like we should touch on that a little. We should. Yeah. So what did you think? You know, I kind of liked it. I'm excited. Now, I was a great big fan of the last movie, Days of Future Past. And this one seems to be taking more of the things I liked about that and running with them, which is to say not being afraid to just be a freaking comic book movie.
1: Storm looks so
0: good. She does. They have Mohawk Storm as well. They should.
1: I have really mixed feelings about the aesthetic in general and also kind of the theme because I'm really, really tired at this point of the Charles Xavier's feelings trilogy, which is (laughs) kind of what we're in the third part of right now. Man, it's just the costumes and the aesthetic still feel so desaturated.
0: Yeah, it is really weird seeing um, Mystique leading the X-Men wearing a bunch of generic gray body armor in, like, a military wasteland, because basically it's just the Mockingjay movies done with some X's on them, aesthetically. Mm,
1: Yeah, I have trouble separating the things that I'm leery of in the trailer with the things I'm generally sort of leery of in the movie continuity universe, so, like, the much older version of Havoc, stuff like that, but... I mean, I don't know. I am still vaguely optimistic. I feel like it's going to be worth a watch and interesting no matter what. And I almost... It almost feels pointless to talk about the trailer, at least as us, because you know we're going to watch it no matter what. Like, there's nothing that's going to sell me on it or not in this.
0: Yeah, that's fair. But still, I am happy to see an apocalypse that changes size and shape and makes big speeches. Although I gotta say, my apocalypse voice, sorry, Oscar, mine's a little bit better. I can dub over you if you want. They did it in Star Wars. It worked really well then. I don't (laughs) mind. You know, I'll do it for a very reasonable rate. You can just credit me at the end. It'll be fine.
1: I am more optimistic about Apocalypse than I was before I saw the trailer because that's a hard role to pull off. And I think if anyone can do it and lend it a degree of credible gravitas, it's going to be Oscar Isaac because he is so good at being a maniacal villain. I don't. Did you see Ex Machina?
0: Uh, I did. Yeah, that was great.
1: Yeah, he was terrifying in that. He was so good. I mean, obviously, the only bits of Apocalypse we've seen are the big explosive trailer appropriate snippets. But I am really, really curious to see the direction that he's going to take the character in general.
0: My hope is that the two-hour movie is like an hour and 45 minutes of Apocalypse talking about how awesome he is, and then a 15-minute fight scene, the end.
1: No, no, no. You forgot the part where he's got the turtleneck and the cats.
0: Oh, good point. Just, you know, Apocalypse's downtime. That can be the thing at the end of the credits, if you stay for the credits. Anyway, all of that very much aside, let's talk about the X-Factor chapter of Fall of the Mutants.
1: Okay, so when last we left our heroes, they had just defeated a robot replica of Cameron Hodge in the Wright's headquarters and just as suddenly been teleported away with the same teleportation signatures that we'd seen previously associated with Apocalypse's horsemen.
0: Yeah, and in fact, the last issue ended with the kids recognizing the signature and Boom Boom saying, but wait, weren't there four horsemen in mythology? (laughs) So, uh, yes, yes, there were. We've already met the fourth horseman. We know it's death. We know death is really Warren Worthington III having been resurrected by Apocalypse.
1: We know he has awesome metal wings and the coolest Walter Simonson design ever.
0: Yes, but X-Factor has not met Warren. So that's going to be all sorts of drama. They've met Warren.
1: They haven't met death.
0: Okay, fine. They haven't met Warren in his most recent uh, sartorial endeavor. That's good. With the pink and the purple. Good to be precise. It it is. It's true. So yeah, X-Factor who, by the way, at this point are Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Beast, Iceman, and Caliban. Caliban is currently the fifth member of X-Factor.
1: Sort of. I feel like they kind of put him in a uniform and then just ignore him.
0: You know, Caliban gets ignored a lot, and that's kind of going to be a plot point in this one. That's
1: going to be a major plot point in this one, actually.
0: Yeah. So, Caliban detects mutant signatures. So, he specifically detects, you know, something old, the horseman, something new, apocalypse, apocalypse is new to him, something borrowed, hey, it's angel, and something blue, which I guess is also apocalypse. He does apocalypse. not. Uh, he does not. Kind of does.
1: I'd also like to point out that technically Warren would qualify as all four of those things.
0: I'm still proud of my bizarre reference to a wedding tradition.
1: That doesn't even make sense, man. Sense. And and again, you know, all four of those could be covered by Archangel.
0: Yes, well. Anyway, uh, what Caliban also does is immediately begin looking for a weapon. Now, this is something we've seen happen with Caliban more and more and more ever since the Mutant Massacre, ever since he became a regular character in the X-Books which is that he is terrified of getting killed or having his friends get killed. He feels powerless and he hates that. And so he's always looking for ways to be less powerless.
1: Speaking of fighting, something we forgot to mention when we were going into this is that X-Factor has clashed with the horsemen before. And one of the things that happened at that point is that Beast was infected by pestilence. He got very sick. He appeared to get better. But what we've seen over the last few issues is that every time he exerts himself physically, his intelligence and his cognizance starts to slip away further.
0: And what's interesting here, and I think what's definitely a credit to Louise Simonson's writing style, is that even as Beast's syntax starts to slip, even as his words end with and apostrophe instead of I-N-G more and more, we still see Hank McCoy's personality shining through. Simonson is great at getting to the core of who Hank is, even as what he's most known for, his intelligence, starts to fade away.
1: He's also very clearly aware of what's happening to him, which is part of what makes it so sad and so disturbing.
0: Now, X-Factor doesn't really have long to wonder what's going on, because Apocalypse, who is not exactly known for his subtlety, immediately shows up and starts delivering his whole, you know, peace is bad for evolutionary business plan to them.
1: This is also the first time we get Apocalypse's original initial origin story. This is going to be narrowed down a lot in later years, but for now... This dude is a big deal, or at least has his brag game down.
0: Now, I'd like to point out that Apocalypse is delivering this speech after a brief scuffle in which he sort of uh, slides around on his hammer arms and bounces everywhere. <laughs> dude, you've got to up your intimidation game. Shapeshifting is really badass, I know, but you can't just shapeshift like however you feel like. You have to do it in scary ways. Bouncing around in hammer arms? I don't know if that's scary exactly. I
1: mean, it is if you're like 12 feet tall and have teleporters.
0: Well, I guess that's true. And if you then say stuff like this. As long as
2: man has existed, I, Apocalypse, have stalked among them. I have had other names. But wherever there was cruelty and death, there was my face worshipped. There were men tested. There, civilizations flourished and then fell. In ancient Egypt, they called me Set, God of death of storm and famine, brother slayer, himself undying. In Persia I was Soru, prince of demons, lord of anarchy and tyranny. The Aztecs called me Huitzilopochtli, god of war and bloody sacrifice. In India, I was four-armed Kali Ma, the Black Mother, sword-wielding, draped in snakes, girdled in skulls. Always, I brought growth, judgment, destruction. As it was before, so will it be. Again.
1: Now, as I mentioned, Apocalypse was later toned down significantly in that he is, you know, only one god instead of, like, all of them.
0: But let's think about that for a sec, because, I mean, what's being shown here, just like was shown in the X-Men chapter of All the Mutants, with the adversary basically being the creator and destroyer of humanity we're now seeing Apocalypse as essentially the founder of every religion in history, or at least most of the big ones. Well,
1: no, we're seeing him as specifically the adversarial death god in most of those religions, and that's important, and actually that fits really, really well with one version of, you know, his canonical origin, in which he's empowered by the Celestials, because that's a really Celestial-appropriate
0: role. Yeah, although I do want to point out one of the things that we hear in the X-Men Apocalypse movie trailer, as he does essentially the same speech as him saying he was Yahweh, you know, the Judeo christian god so they appear to be kind of going back to the original idea of apocalypse as having been ever present in most religions
1: oh that's gonna be fun to watch reactions to
0: Yup. so yes um, apocalypse has been toned down a little since then i mean he's you know and Noor, who is certainly a big deal throughout a great deal of history but he doesn't tend to be portrayed as every death god ever these days
1: now x factor rejects apocalypse's offer to join him and rule with him and sow discord Although Caliban is, you know, intrigued at least.
0: He's intrigued by his offer and would like to subscribe to his newsletter.
1: Oh, man. What do you think Apocalypse's newsletter looks like?
0: I don't know, but I think it's laid out very carefully. I think, like, you know, when he's watching Netflix and his Snuggy on his couch, he's just, like, doing paste-ups of it, like an old-school scene, and he's trying to get everything lined oh, up perfectly. Oh, no,
1: it's not, though. Like, he's the guy who has Microsoft Office Suite and just uses that for everything.
0: Oh, he's got, like, Publisher 97, and he refuses to get rid of his old Windows 98 machine because nothing newer He uses run it. That,
1: that horrible font with the little spirals in the letters because it looks more festive.
0: Oh, goddammit, Saban! Ineffectual
1: manager apocalypse is such a thing, and I love it
0: so much. <laughs> me too. Okay, so, and they fight, of course, because when the big bad guy says, join me or perish, and you say, no, I don't want to join you, then, hey, they want you to perish. And so the fight scene is really cool. I mean, Louis Simonson and Walter Simonson's the artist. Do a kick-ass fight scene is very engaging. You can totally follow what's going on. But what I want to talk about here is the panel layout, because that is really novel and important to the storytelling.
1: And I should mention, we try to bring this up periodically, but we post visual companions to every episode on our blog where we show some of the panels and pages that we're talking about and some of the visual points of reference that are less well served by just audio description. And I would recommend clicking over to that now if you're in a position to, because I'm going to stick a couple of these up and also a sequence of one of the series of panels that Miles is talking about here.
0: So each of the pages of this fight scene, most of the panel layout, you know, varies based on what's going on, but each page has two things in common. One is sort of a big vertical panel to the left. That has two images of Apocalypse, sort of narrating, commenting on the fight as it occurs, as X Factor fights the horsemen and fights Apocalypse himself. And, you know, that just shows Apocalypse being kind of badass. What's more important, though, is a narrow panel at the bottom of each page with Caliban. Now, he gets knocked over and almost knocked unconscious early on in the fight. And as this fight continues, as Apocalypse talks about power and evolution and claiming strength,
1: Caliban, who's very much marginalized within the actual play out of the story, is reacting to it in that thin strip along the bottom of the page. And you know, it's a cool device, and it's actually a really cool example of something that comics can do that very few media can effectively, which is showing multiple stories and multiple narrative threads playing out simultaneously. And this one does such a good job of directing focus along those multiple simultaneous threads, not only individually, but in terms of the ways they intersect and interact with one another.
0: Yeah, it's great. So anyway, fight continues. We see Famine sort of uh, turning the whole know us by our deeds thing that Iceman said a number of issues ago against him, saying, well, look at the humans, look at their deeds, look at what they've done to mutants, as she, you know, famines at him.
1: It's true, humans do kind of suck.
0: Many of them, yeah. And we also see Pestilence tussling with Beast and explaining what may have happened to get him into the state.
1: Explaining being a relative term, because this is some hardcore super science hand-waving. Um, basically... As you may recall, very early on in X Factor, Beast got kidnapped by a guy named Carl Maddox, an evil scientist who experimented on him and in the process returned Beast to his pre-blue, more human-looking form. And also the blue form was the result of Beast messing with his own genetics.
0: The last time he worked with Maddox. He should just stay away from this Maddox guy.
1: Well, he can more easily because Maddox is now dead, although his kid Artie is now living with X Factor.
0: Well, Artie's great. He's allowed. But
1: the gist of what Pestilence tells Beast is that Maddox messed with his DNA in such a way that pestilence's plague affected him oddly and now his body is his immune system is sort of overcompensating by detracting from his intelligence and contributing to his strength whenever he performs feats of strength it's dubious
0: that sounds entirely plausible and scientific i think according to science that is science
1: and that's why you work in i.t
0: exactly so This fight continues, and things are going alright for X-Factor until Apocalypse decides to show the team what's behind door number one.
1: Funny you should put it that way, because dang, Apocalypse is Vanna Whiting so hard when he finally reveals death. He's literally doing the Vanna White pose, like on the splash page, like he's holding out his hands like that.
0: Well, he's very proud of his work, and I think he should be.
1: Well, to a point. We're gonna get to this later, but Apocalypse isn't actually very good at his job.
0: I mean, he's good at describing being good at his job.
1: He is, and he's good at dramatic presentation. I mean, he's got the theater of what he does down very well, but the actual tactics and logistics kind of escape him. For now, though, luck is on his side, and more importantly, death is. Death, as you may recall, is terrifying. He's got this skull mask, as do most of the horsemen, but he's got this very sort of iconic, very cosmic Kirby design and huge bladed
0: wings. And I really like the way this works, the pacing of this page as Apocalypse Vanna's Warren on his way out, which is just this sort of silhouetted figure appears from a gateway of light. And then these kind of l-shaped wing stubs just pop out of the figure's back kind of sharp and bladed and intimidating and then as warren comes into the foreground they blossom into these enormous bladed wings which look terrifying they look like they're just made of pain and death and shredding all of your flesh off
1: yeah as you said apocalypse really should be proud and it's when death pulls off his mask i mean x factor has to at least suspect initially that they recognize him for who he actually is
0: And he pulls off his death mask, and this is actually some of the scariest bit of the entire page for me, because we see him with, aside from the blue coloration, a very human face. And just the amount of blank nonchalance, almost, on this face. Like, he sees all this carnage going on, and he just doesn't care. It doesn't impact him in any way. And seeing Warren Worthington, a character who was often known for his kind of jovial, enthusiastic, often full-of-himself personality, just be this blank slate of indifference toward his friends who are getting their asses kicked, that's harsh.
1: And he takes them out so fast. The knives in his wings have some kind of paralytic agent, and he's just able to take them off the map in just a few panels.
0: Those knives are called flechettes. I'd like to point that out because it's fun to say flechettes. Flechettes. There you go.
1: Flechettes. Flechettes.
0: You know, you can really say it however. Flechettes. And this being an X title, Warren certainly doesn't fight them in silence.
1: Warren
3: Worthington is no more. I am death. Alive, I was miserable, alone. The humans stripped me of my wealth, of beauty, name, pride. They cut off my wings. I was in pain, confused. Maybe I would have ended it all, wasted it all. And then Apocalypse took me, remade me in his image. I have pulled away the final mask. You see what's left.
0: It doesn't take long for Apocalypse and the Horsemen to subdue X-Factor, to strap them down to these operating tables, but the entire time they're still trying to convince Warren to go back to being the man they know and love to break free of this. He's having none of it, though, and demands his mask from Apocalypse. Gene says, "'Warren, you can't hide what you are. Masks mean nothing. Mutant, human, they're labels. Masks, too, in a way. It's what we are, what we do that counts.'"
3: Some masks hide what we are, Gene. Others reveal it.
0: And at that point, the horsemen head down to Manhattan to sow as much fear and hatred as possible and to basically start a race war between humans and mutants.
1: Now, as all of this has been going on, Caliban has been watching from the sidelines. He was sort of knocked out early in the fight. And he is getting angrier and more frustrated. He's also seeing what Apocalypse has done to Angel, the ways in which he has effectively weaponized the otherwise admittedly not particularly effective Warren Worthington III.
0: I mean, Warren was really good at dodging stuff. Don't get me wrong. I mean, except those times that he wasn't. No,
1: I mean, Warren's main superpower was being a rich dude who could fly.
0: I mean, being rich actually is a pretty powerful thing, unfortunately. It
1: is. It's less effective in the heat of battle. I was going to say being a rich dude who can fly actually sounds kind of great (laughs) in just a general milieu. But in context of Warren's superhero life, it only went so far. He wasn't directly weaponized. His powers weren't directly offensive. So, again, we've been watching Caliban react over the course of the issue, and especially ultimately to the reveal of Archangel, to, you know, Warren Worthington III, effectively and completely weaponized. This is a guy whose powers were cool, but had very, very little, you know, direct offensive capabilities. And now he is terrifying. He is literally a weapon. And Caliban, who has himself just been feeling powerless and effectively, you know, impotent in the face of the death of his people, is obviously really, really intrigued by the possibilities that that implies.
0: He appears and walks right past X-Factor. They try to get him to help them, and he doesn't. Instead, he walks up to Apocalypse and kneels down and says, Can you do for Caliban what you did for Angel? Can you give Caliban such power?
1: Can you give Caliban some rat eyebrow ridges?
0: And... That's basically it for Caliban as a member of X-Factor. This is what he has been looking for this entire time. Power to protect himself and those he cares about. And at this point, he doesn't care where that power comes from or what price tag it has.
1: Which brings us to X-Factor 25. Like every other Fall of the Mutants set, the middle issue of the X-Factor Fall of the Mutants story is double-sized. This is the big one where the big stuff goes down.
0: This must have been a really expensive month for X-Fans. I mean, three double-sized issues all in the same month.
1: But they're all so
0: good. They are all so good. It's true.
1: Oh, I was going to say, you know, that basically means, you know, six X-Books in one month. Can you imagine?
0: Oh, geez. Uh, well, you know, it's closer to that these days as well, opposed and to a couple years ago. We're also thinking
1: in modern prices, which have increased very, very disproportionately to their relative value to inflation so i mean comics are in relative terms more expensive now as well as in, in literal terms so it's not quite as big a leap then as it would be now
0: quite true but yeah so the horsemen are wreaking havoc down in manhattan which they really enjoy doing you know do what you love you never work a day in your life right no oh okay I wonder what the benefits are like for being a horseman. I don't know. Well,
1: Um, obviously, there's a pretty good health program, but it all involves, you know, techno-organic viruses and upgrades and stuff.
0: Oh, it's like one of those uh, health plans where you're locked into a certain system of hospitals and providers, and those hospitals and providers all use celestial technology to turn people into living weapons? Yeah, basically. Okay. And so, as this is going on, Apocalypse is taking this chance, as one would expect, to basically villain-splain his entire plan to his captive audience.
1: And- You know, his plan actually doesn't make much sense.
0: Well, it doesn't. But basically what it comes down to is he is trying to make overall the people living on Earth more powerful. So the whole only the strong survive thing, the way he's going to do that is he's going to create this sort of crucible of fire and violence by creating a war between mutants and humans. And the only ones who will survive it are the most powerful who will then deserve to rule the world.
1: Here's the biggest flaw in Apocalypse's reasoning. None of what he's doing is specifically mutant associated like Cameron Hodge is working toward a similar end and he's got a really canny PR campaign when he is going and sending guys in robot suits to wreak havoc. He's making sure they say we're mutants. Apocalypse's horsemen are just weirdos on robot
0: horses. That's true, I and mean, I think that's a flaw you see in the Marvel Universe in general, which is the whole hated and feared thing doesn't make as much sense when it becomes incredibly unclear who's a mutant and who's not, and that's actually something I really enjoyed in the most recent issue of Extraordinary X-Men, was a sort of character with non-human features getting bullied by a bunch of racist humans as a mutant, and it turning out he was really an inhuman. They didn't know. I thought that was kind of cool.
1: Yeah, but the thing is, the hated and feared thing doesn't even make sense when you know that the people people who are wreaking havoc or mutants. And here, Apocalypse isn't really trying to make that known. He's been honestly largely relying on Cameron Hodge, you know, from afar without making those expectations clear to rile up anti-mutant sentiment and then just sort of assumes that anything he does will be read as supporting that.
0: Yeah, but I mean, he does show some good points on his view screen. Like we actually see Ronald Reagan signing the Mutant Registration Act. And so, yes, the X-Factor is getting angrier and angrier during this. And Beast, who, you know, he's been losing his intelligence as he's been gaining strength, in his anger, actually crunches down with his hands on the metal under them and manages to rip out part of the hospital gurney celestial thing that he's lying on and has the mental wherewithal to flick it at Iceman's power inhibitor belt.
1: I get the impression with Beast, and some of this might just be uneven writing or, you know, no prizing an explanation out of it, but the impression I get with Beast is that he's losing a lot of sort of higher order stuff, but he's still got a lot of instinct. Like, he still can clearly handle himself in the fight, And when he acts without thinking, often he does it in ways that might line up with something that the more cognizant Hank McCoy would have come up with.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And sure enough, I mean, that frees Iceman's powers up enough to freeze the shackles off. There's a big fight. And during this fight, Apocalypse manages to lure X-Factor over to the ship's transformer. Cyclops blasts it, and the backup systems kick in, starting to suck the power and light from the city below, and Apocalypse is doing his whole
2: this was all part of the plan
0: thing.
1: Which is weird, because couldn't he have just turned it off himself?
0: Okay, so I thought about this, and here's my take on it. So Apocalypse lives in ship, right? Like this giant celestial spaceship that's really, really huge. So he can't remember where everything is. I mean, you know, I probably it takes him a week to, uh, you know, just to clean all of the rooms just to dust everything
1: i thought ship was self-cleaning
0: well you know apocalypse likes to do things himself it, it makes him feel a little more connected to his dwelling so i think it's kind of like that one episode of over the garden wall with the T magnate where he doesn't know all of what's in his house and so it gets kind of confusing and so i'm guessing he didn't know where the generator was he always really wanted to do this but when cyclops accidentally blasted it, he's like oh yeah that was my plan
1: do you think he's also having a ghost romance
0: i can only assume so yes
1: So Cyclops takes out the generator. The entire city blacks out all of New York. Cyclops and Marvel Girl are somehow in the process of this ejected from the ship, which is a really good move because it gives us our first look at the devastation the horsemen are wreaking on New York. And it also gives us our first look at the ship in context, which is amazing. Oh, man, ship is cool for a lot of reasons. But one of the coolest things actually about the X Factor arc of Fall of the Mutants in general is how grounded it is in a real place and how tangible its repercussions feel.
0: Yeah, and I think that's especially true in contrast to the other two chapters of Fall of the Mutants in X-Men and New Mutants, because with this, it's very much the real world. It's very much, you know, a city like the cities that many of us live in, with landmarks getting demolished by a giant freaking robot spaceship.
1: We're going to come back to that in a little bit. In fact, we're going to come back to that once ship is visible, which it's not currently. It's got some kind of cloaking device. For now, though, Cyclops and Marvel Girl are out trying to deal with the horsemen And in the process, they're back kind of for the first time in roles in a relationship that are familiar and comfortable and positive for them. They are fighting as themselves, as mutants, against impossible odds to save the world. They're unambiguously the good guys in this. And they're finally out from under the guise of mutant hunting and X-Factor. You see, you know, Cyclops saying, just like when we were kids, up to our necks in more trouble than we can handle.
0: And he kisses her. And they've, of course, had a very fraught relationship, especially a romantic one, since Jean Grey came back from the dead. So this is kind of a big deal. And she just looks at him and says, Scott, welcome back. This is what they need right here. It's just it's so clear and unambiguous, like you were just talking about. And it's a nice little victory beat for the reader.
1: Right. These two are so at their best at the end of the world.
0: So, they split up to go fight the various horsemen who are out wreaking havoc, and actually, Pestilence, at this point, is fighting Power Pack, which we see in the tie-in issue, Power Pack 35, more on that later. Famine, after she beats Marvel Girl, actually goes off to America's breadbasket to fight Captain America in Captain America number 339. More on that later.
1: It's worth noting, and I think we talked about this briefly in one of the earlier Fall of the Mutants episodes, almost all of the Fall of the Mutants tie-ins are connected to the X-Factor story. There's almost nothing connected to New Mutants. And I think one brief overlap with Uncanny X-Men in a Hulk issue.
0: You know, it kind of makes sense because this is the event that you really can connect things to. This is New York City, where pretty much all of the superheroes in the Marvel Universe are hanging out, unless they have West Coast in the name of their team. So I'll
1: buy it. Scott and Jean, meanwhile, keep on trying to convince the horsemen to stop. They're fighting them. But I think really seeing Angel has kind of grounded them in the fact that these were all once actual people. And they're trying to appeal to them on that level before they take them down physically.
0: Doesn't work, but, you know, points for trying. So, Scott and Jean are doing their thing. Iceman and the Beast are still on Apocalypse's ship, fighting Apocalypse, as he's gloating about how the humans are already setting up protests in the streets.
1: Which is such a bad idea, because, like, the sky is falling. Don't go out in the streets with fucking picket signs, humans. This is not a good plan. This is not good disaster preparedness.
0: Although, that said, I kind of feel like Hub and Corey of Teen Titans Wasteland, which is a podcast kind of like ours, but for Silver Age Teen Titans, would love this. They have a fixation with people with picket signs protesting. Testing for or against things. And so to this, be fair, this is there
1: are a lot of those in early Teen Titans. And yeah, this is an aside, but mad plugs to Teen Titans Wasteland. If you like what we do, but really wish we were talking about, you know, teenagers in Silver Age DC, that is the podcast to track down. It's a huge lot of fun.
0: Yes. And so they all fight for a while. And once again, Apocalypse maybe manipulates, maybe just claims credit for a member of X Factor breaking part of the ship and causing further carnage.
1: Um, and that is Beast knocking out both its cloaking device. And it's stabilizers. So ship is now unmoored and basically crashing into New York. And I mentioned the sense of scale and the sense of, you know, grounding in real place that Simonson brings this. And oh, my God, this whole scene is just so good. And it's so scary. The sense of the stakes and just the scale of the devastation at this point. This battle that's being fought above and then through the buildings of New York is just Breathtaking.
0: Yeah. And one little bit I especially like in that vein is that the ship crashes into the Empire State Building and knocks off its antenna. And so we see Marvel Girl struggling to telekinetically hold this thing up so it doesn't crash into and kill a whole bunch of people.
1: And, you know, showing someone struggling with telekinesis is really hard to pull off credibly because it's not like they're actually holding something up. And again, God, there's nothing, nothing in the art in this that I don't love and that doesn't just work beautifully yeah and that's one of my favorite parts actually is marvel girl struggling to hold the needle of the empire state building up
0: she gets a little help from power pack who then proceed to accidentally kill pestilence and then we murdered an old lady that's like you know thing number 435 they tell their therapist later in life
1: right again power pack does not do well when they cross over with x books the power pack story in this they fight and take down pestilence they help keep ship from crashing into new york And it reminds me a lot of their Mutant Massacre tie in where they take down a villain who is so far out of their league.
0: It's the advantage of being a cute little kid that the writer can't bear to kill. It's great.
1: You know, and the headliners in their own book.
0: That's true. After Pestilence is killed, Cyclops and Marvel Girl immediately mount up on her robot horse thing and head off to save Iceman and Beast to find Apocalypse.
1: Way to equip the boss's loot right after you win the battle.
0: I mean, a lot of people forget to do that. They forget to save, they forget to equip the cool sword they just got. Or robot horse, as the case may be.
1: And it's a good thing that they come back, because speaking of video games, Iceman freezes Apocalypse, who breaks free, and then immediately informs him. And I swear to God, this is actually a quote from the comic.
2: You have now reached the second level of difficulty. What? Yeah, I I don't know.
0: I really have no explanation for that line. I mean, the only thing I can think of is maybe he's saying, well, now I'm going to call Death back and have Death fight you directly. But that's still a really weird way of phrasing it. Man,
1: Apocalypse is so far out of his depth.
0: So that's the thing. Apocalypse is immensely powerful and immensely impressive. And he's been around for thousands of years. But he does seem to be kind of flying by the seat of his pants here, which is weird and certainly not the way he's portrayed later. That being said, I still love it. I still just love the degree of confidence he has, even as things go in weird directions.
1: He's Kind of retconning his plans as he goes along, like, this will be what sows discord between humans and mutants. It didn't? Well, well, maybe this next thing will. Yeah, Yeah, so that'll work. And Warren, you you come cover this.
0: But Apocalypse definitely doesn't have a monopoly on big speeches. Uh, He seems to have given that to his protege, his Padawan, if you will, death.
3: See how we fight among ourselves. See what the humans have made of us. But Apocalypse will bury them in their own refuse. They have earned their fate. Why try to stop him? Why throw away your lives? You talk of peace and justice. The human's courts promise justice. And yet they let men amputate my wings. Was there justice in that? Or only vengeance perpetrated on those who have by those who have not? I judge the humans by their deeds, Iceman, as I judge you. Apocalypse has given me the wings of truth, and they slice deep. Those who are not with us are our enemies, and death
1: will destroy you.
0: And then he flies through and shatters Iceman.
1: Well, Iceman has mentioned that he's gotten an idea from talks of Warren's death. And what we learn here is that Iceman has learned well the lesson of his first mentor and teacher, Charles Xavier, namely, when in doubt, fake your own death. He's created an ice duplicate of himself and, you know, drawn Angel's attention to it in hopes that Warren will be snapped out of whatever state he's in by the shock of having killed one of his teammates.
0: It's only a model.
1: And he does. It works. Angel is horrified, you know, Apocalypse is like, hey, you passed the test, and Angel is like, oh, hell no, 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 I'm out.
0: And, in fact, the way he is out is by fighting by the side of his former comrades of X-Factor against Apocalypse and the remaining horsemen, and they win soundly.
1: Apocalypse comes up with yet another rationalization saying, oh, you know, it was a test, we were just forcing you to evolve, but the humans will attack you for it, and it'll start a war, totally, it really will, I promise, this was my real plan.
0: Yeah, he says that he's leaving the ship to X-Factor as part of this ill-defined goal. And
1: that the humans will hate them for it.
0: And so he then flies away with big silly robot legs, carrying Caliban, the re-paralyzed war, and being flanked by famine. And that's the last we see of Apocalypse for a little while.
1: Now, Apocalypse is right about one thing, and that is that the humans are really upset about the ship. Because it is falling on New York City right now, and it's enormous, and it's weird and alien, and why do humans conclude that this is a mutant thing and not from space? They are in New York, the home of the Fantastic Four. Wouldn't space be a more logical
0: explanation? Well, you'd think so, but maybe they know it's an X-book.
1: Actually, a lot of them do jump to a different conclusion that's covered in the Daredevil tie-in, which we're going to get to after we've talked about the rest of the X-Factor story.
0: But they managed to direct ship to land specifically on X-Factor headquarters, and if there's ever a way a writer could say the status quo is now different, having a giant Robot ship crush the previous location of the previous status quo seems like a good way of doing it.
1: Didn't X Factor have staff? Like, weren't the kids there? Didn't they just send the kids home after fighting the right?
0: Ah, you know, the kids are fine. The last they saw the kids, they were escaping from the right's headquarters, so I'm sure that they're not in their own home. Well, it does turn out to be fine. But regardless, it doesn't take the media long to climb onto ship and start banging on the door demanding to know what the hell's going on. And Cyclops, to his credit, tells them.
1: As long as we allow mutants like Apocalypse and equally reactionary humans to draw an imaginary line between humans and mutants, it makes their goal of conflict not only possible but inevitable. We mutants aren't alien beings or monsters. We're human too, humanity's children. We've learned that much today. The good among us must work together, or the greedy and power-mad in their lust to possess the Earth for their kind alone will make the Earth a battleground and ultimately a graveyard
0: right on, Scott.
1: Yeah, he used to do this for a living, You remember?
0: That's true. (laughs) And as part of this, he also comes clean completely about what X-Factor was doing, the whole mutant hunter, mutant savior thing. He's just, hey, here's everything. We're laying it all out on the table. No more secrets. Here's who we are. Make your decision based on that. And this has needed to happen for so long. And I think even more than the victory against Apocalypse, for me, this is where the catharsis comes in in this issue.
1: Yeah, this is X-Factor getting something that they've been after since the beginning of the series. The same thing they were looking for when they began which is a new start a genuinely fresh start yeah which brings us to the wrap-up to x-factor 26 as with the other series you know the big climax comes in the middle and the last issue is kind of about the fallout and the denouement now even as the press and the police are eager for a word with x-factor new york is still in a state of crisis and largely on fire
0: Yeah, and I really like that we do get to see the fallout from this. I mean, usually it's just in, like, damage control that you see what happens to a city after a big superhero fight. But X-Factor goes into action. I mean, they've been up for days at this point. They're exhausted. They've been beaten all to hell. And they don't hesitate to start, you know, pulling people out of burning and collapsing buildings and that sort of thing.
1: And again, we get kind of more resolution with regards to Scott and Jean. What looks like it's going to be a final resolution to the Scott Jean ghost of Madeline Pryor love triangle and really seems like, again, sort of the two of them getting a new fresh start, which will last as long as the next issue of X Factor when the video from Dallas finally goes live.
0: Where Madeline Pryor was saying goodbye to Scott. But you know what? This is X Factor. Even if it's only for an issue, we'll take what happiness we can get.
1: They are rescuing people from a burning building, trying to get them to a hospital. And while they're at the hospital, Iceman and Beast run into a surgeon who is furious about what mutants have done, mentions, you know, those big smiley face mutants who killed a bunch of people at the Worthington Will reading.
0: Referring to the soldiers of the right. And I love this. Louise Simonson's writing and Walter Simonson's art sell the hell out of this. There's just a panel of Beast looking confused, silent, and then another one of him with a tear running down his face saying, the smile faces, they weren't mutants. And Beast's intelligence is almost entirely gone at this point. He's had to use so much of his strength in the fight against Apocalypse that he's basically like a child, and just being faced with a fundamental unfairness of that bigotry It hurts. It hurts to read.
1: And there to inadvertently rub salt into those wounds is none other than Trish Tilby. This is the journalist who had sort of been on to there being something wrong with X Factor from the start. We find out here that that's because Candy Southern tipped her off. And seriously, Trish, I had your back till now, but you don't just randomly name a source. Come on.
0: Seriously, that's like Fourth Estate 101. But she starts asking Beast for an interview. The last time she saw Beast, he was brilliant. He was the most intelligent member of X Factor. Iceman explains a little of what's going on and is just trying to comfort Beast as he throws his arms around Trish. He's just sobbing at this point. Again, this is hard, but what I really love about it is seeing just how much Bobby cares, how concerned Bobby is, how much he's trying to speak for Hank in the ways that Hank can't speak for himself. We've said before that an original five X-Men book, you can really judge it based on the quality of the writing of the friendship between Iceman and Beast, and by those standards, this is a resounding success.
1: The next day, Dawn's X Factor has been going at this point for three days without sleep. They're trying to do what they can in the cleanup and making a pretty significant difference to it. Enough of one that the city itself has taken note. Cyclops's speech has hit the airwaves. People are starting to figure out what's going on. And the cops who come and confront them at the hospital say that, yeah, actually, they're there because their new orders are basically to treat X Factor like heroes and to basically see how they can help out to work together. And, you know, for me... It's that point that sort of becomes what I think of as the second era, the second iteration of X Factor. Way back when we started this series, when we first talked about X Factor, I talked about this book, what I like about it, as being the X book that's about growing up. You know, The New Mutants is that in a very literal sense and that all the characters are teenagers. It's very much a coming of age story. But X Factor is very much about learning to be an adult, learning to connect with the world in a way that's not just a continuation of what you were doing as a teenager and as a kid. And X-Factor's relationship with New York in the aftermath of the fall of the mutants is, I think, really emblematic of that.
0: Yeah, they're basically the Ghostbusters from the end of the first Ghostbusters movie. Everyone is just cheering, watching them on television, running after the cop cars that they're in. There's this really adorable part where a little girl runs up to Jean with flowers. Lady, lady, I picked these for you. You saved my grandma from a fire and she says to thank you. And my grandma said it's okay if I grew up to be a mutant just like you again vindication catharsis joy it's all great
1: one of the things that the cops key in on that x factor has sort of overlooked is that ship won't let anyone who's not a mutant inside and the cops point out you know you're being hounded by reporters you can set up ship as a headquarters and then you'll have a retreat you'll have a safe space to get away to that most of them presumably can't follow you into at least not without being outed as mutants unless they don't actually discuss that there i just think it's a point worth
0: mentioning (laughs) fair enough And so, yeah, that's exactly what they do. They go hang out on ship. I mean, yes, it was the site of their last big battle. Yes, it was the headquarters of one of their big enemies. But right now, it's a place without reporters and paparazzi, and that's kind of awesome.
1: And very pertinently to two members of the team, it's a place with bedrooms with doors.
0: Right. Scott and Jean are finally taking a moment of quiet. Scott's talking about how his wife Madeline had always thought he was going to die in battle, and yet there she was. She herself died. Remember, he still thinks that she was killed. Yeah, and
1: now that things are quiet, maybe he can actually finally find out who killed her and resolve that.
0: And Jean looks at Scott and says, "'Scott, the world still needs you. We still need you, too. Let me—let us help you. We'll find them, whoever they are, and lay her ghost to rest together.' Listen to me, Scott Summers. Phoenix is dead. Madeline's dead. You've got to accept that. And for once, surprise, I'm alive. We found each other again after all these years, and I'm not going to let anybody's ghost stand between us. Scott, Maddie was right. The way we live, we may all be dead tomorrow.
1: And then the next time we see them, they're putting their clothes back on.
0: It's sort of a fade to black well, fade to blue because it's a celestial technology moment. But this actually made me think, is this the first time we've ever had Scott and Jean confirmedly have sex? I mean, there was the Butte, but I mean, that it's was not, Phoenix. It's not
1: exactly confirmed. I mean, they might reasonably just have changed their clothes, but it's fairly heavily implied. And yeah, I think this is at least the first time that it's been a reasonable read.
0: And I think this is kind of a big deal because their relationship has been incredibly rocky since Jean came back from the dead. You know, I mean, there was Madeline, there was the Phoenix thing. And for me, this is kind of the first time that they say, you know what, that's all complicated, but let's just be us
1: yeah the extent to which cyclops has pulled his shit together really kind of starting with the fall of x-factor with the reveal of cameron hodge's super villainy is fairly spectacular like having that obfuscation having the x-factor mutant hunter fakery pulled away seems to have kind of clicked a switch for him where he can finally actually step up and be the functional leader of the team and also kind of Put his personal ducks in a row.
0: And nothing bad ever happened to Scott Summers again. He never had any more trouble psychologically or logistically with any aspect of his life. And he and Gene lived happily ever after with no problems.
1: Dude, the cold open of this episode was literally about how he is dead right now in 616.
0: Except for that and 500 other things. Yeah,
1: and the entire rest of his life. (laughs)
0: But anyway, yeah, so Scott and Gene are putting their clothes back on, or more specifically, they're putting on, I guess, spare Horsemen of Apocalypse outfits, which, okay, guys, I know your costumes got really messed up and they're probably super gross after wearing them for three days, but you're seriously going to wear, like, Apocalypse's soldiers' uniforms? You know what
1: I love? I love that those uniforms just look like fancy sweatsuits.
0: I mean, you know, Apocalypse, he made them himself. He's very proud of them. They're hand-sewn. He doesn't trust a machine.
1: No, I think he got the print. I think he got them done at one of those places that does, like, you know, custom your business shirts or whatever. Oh, okay. Like, he ordered them. He got a deal in bulk. That's why there are so many extras. But he also understands that being a horseman is probably pretty dirty work, and there's probably a pretty high uniform attrition rate. And he wants them to be comfortable. I mean, they're flying around in New York in winter.
0: That's true. It's like those boxes of T-shirts at Google headquarters where, you know, if employees work all nighters, they can just pick up a fresh one. It's like that. So anyway, no sooner do they start to get this clothing on than do Iceman and Beast burst into their room, uh, thankfully not a few minutes before then, with some new uniforms. It turns out one of the people that they saved as New York was collapsing was not just a tailor, but a fashion designer who has very quickly whipped them up some new uniforms.
1: And these are the uniforms that I really think of as the iconic X-Factor uniforms. I'm not just saying that because this is the version I have a hoodie of, but... um that might be a factor in a no. No, that's why this is the one I tried to track down a hoodie version of, because they are so sharp. Like, they're very, very similar to the previous ones, but the color scheme, it works better for me. They feel more deliberate than the Exterminator's version.
0: Yeah. So we have Cyclops going from blue and yellow to blue and white. We have Beast going from blue and red to brown and yellow, which looks way better than it sounds, I promise. Ice mats, I think, actually stays the same, the light blue and the white. Most it
1: does. And sometimes there are coloring issues that make him completely indistinguishable from Cyclops from the back, which is one of the problems with these uniforms like Cyclops is is supposed to be very dark navy blue. And often it gets colored lighter and Bobby's gets colored darker and they've both got light brown hair. So they're completely indistinguishable unless you can see their faces.
0: Yeah. Well, what's interesting to me is that Jean's costume goes from the green and yellow it was before to red and yellow, which, as any X-Men fan will tell you, is basically the Phoenix to Dark Phoenix color transition.
1: Nobody comments on that. But yeah, that is a really good point, man. That is a hell of a thing. We see another Phoenix-associated character making that switch, actually specifically going to the Dark Phoenix costume in Excalibur. And I'm going to say that her logic is being applied here, which is just that the red and yellow color scheme is a better one.
0: I think it kind of is. And so, freshly dressed and having presumably slept somewhere in there, X-Factor gets ready for the ticker tape parade that the city is throwing for them. And goddamn if it isn't just charming as hell to see them in the back of a convertible driven by the cops who had initially confronted them with confetti and people cheering on all sides and Archangel watching down approvingly and somewhat stoically from a building nearby. It's like, guys, everything is okay. We're reading an X-Factor comic and everything is okay. Well,
1: Apocalypse is still convinced from where he's watching that this is going to lead to human mutant war. But we know at this point that Apocalypse is kind of full
0: of shit. So, okay, there is Fall of the Mutants. That was the third of three chapters. Overall, really, really good event. I think all, all three books do a stellar job. The New Mutants one is a little bit weird because we're still getting used to Louise Simonson as a writer for that book, but very solid crossover.
1: I gotta say, though, I'm glad we wrapped up with this one because it is by far and away my favorite of the Fall of the Mutants stories. X-Men is really good, but it's cosmic on a level that makes it harder to connect to personally. And it feels like less of a climax. Actually, you know, that's what it is. This story for me feels like a climax of the first couple of years of X-Factor in ways that the other two don't necessarily like. They feel like a really big deal. They feel like really big events. And obviously they've been teased for a while, but they don't feel like natural escalations they don't feel like what the books have been leading up to for two years and in x-factor it really does feel like that it feels like the first really big climax and cathartic conclusion
0: I think that's absolutely true, yeah. Now, we had said we were going to touch briefly on the tie-ins with Fall of the Mutants. Let's go ahead and go through that real quick. Now, there was only one tie-in to Uncanny X-Men.
1: And that's Incredible Hulk number 340.
0: The Incredible Inedible Hulk. And that's basically just a fight between Hulk and Wolverine while the X-Men are on their way to Dallas. Not a big deal. The rest of the tie-ins are all X-Factor. We already talked about Power Pack 35. That sort of cuts in and out of the middle issue of the Fall of the Mutants for X-Factor a number of times. It's by Louise Simonson, so it feels very seamless. Highly recommended to read that one.
1: There's Captain America number 339, which we also mentioned earlier. It's basically Captain America and Famine having a fight. Falcon, Nomad, and bizarrely D-Man are in the middle of it. Honestly, if you're going to skip a tie-in, that's probably the one to skip. It does a pretty good job of making Famine pretty scary in ways that she isn't necessarily in other appearances, which I think she really needs. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it very much feels like a tie-in, not part of the story.
0: And then there's Fantastic Four 312, which actually takes place during the ticker tape parade. It's complicated, but the short version is the Black Panther, the FF, and Doctor Doom are all there. Doctor Doom kidnaps the Beast and Ms. Marvel, who's just been turned into a thing, and there's a big fight.
1: Wait, wait, wait. My favorite thing about this has nothing to do with the mutants, and that is the reason Doctor Doom is there, which is that he has been deposed in Latveria by a Doombot that thinks it's Doctor Doom, which is so perfect! I mean, first of all, it is the most obvious natural consequences of Dr. Doom's MO ever. But I just, it's just a really, really hilarious and charming setup.
0: Yup. And lastly, the one you mentioned, Jay, Daredevil number 252. Now, we had had this issue recommended to us by a number of listeners who knew that we were going to be getting to the Fall of the Mutants soon. And while we don't have time to fully cover it the way we cover normal things, I definitely want to give this my highest possible recommendation for something to read alongside the X titles of Fall of the Mutants.
1: We mentioned the fact that that the X-Factor stuff feels like it's really grounded in a real place. And we've also mentioned, you know, that we see its effects on the people on the ground in ways that we don't in New Mutants, because in their case, the people on the ground are just the Dr. Moreau human-animal hybrids, and that we don't in the Uncanny X-Men, because again, they're off doing the cosmic mystical stuff. And one of the things that we see, you know, in Daredevil, and one of the things that N Nesendi, who's writing the title at the time, keys in on, is that this is happening toward the end of the Cold War. And... When you're in New York and the power all goes out and there's shit falling out of the sky and there are people suddenly being stricken with a really severe illness with no source, your first thought is probably going to be that this is it. This is World War Three. Someone has dropped an atomic bomb in the neighborhood.
0: And yes, so society within Hell's Kitchen very quickly falls apart like this gang forms that starts killing everyone in sight to take their stuff Daredevil and Black Widow, who he's working with right now, are going into action to try to save as many people as possible, but watching even some of their allies start taking advantage of the lawless situation and doing terrible things.
1: Well, and it's during the legal clinic days where Daredevil isn't really a defense attorney. He's basically a community organizer at this point. He's doing unofficial, really, really ground-level stuff, doing a lot of work with largely, like, marginalized and homeless populations in Hell's Kitchen. And so that's where he is, and that's the group he's with and the group that he's fighting for and with in this story, which I I really like as a tie-in because that kind of ground level stuff what it's like to be a human who's not in a position of power and who doesn't have access to a lot of information which again you know before the internet and all that there is no live feed of what's happening with apocalypse's ship is something that gets overlooked i think too often in the big cataclysmic superhero stories
0: absolutely so that is the fall of the mutants and you've got questions bilby coder asks on tumblr As an Australian who has been run down and mugged by an emu for my lunch, I understand the terror that they can inspire. I'm fascinated at how often emus have been mentioned in passing in your podcast, and I was wondering if there's a specific source for this interest in those avian thugs. Also, to bring it back on topic, could the X-Men have won the Emu War of 1932 that the Australian forces lost? Which team would have been best suited to fighting this war?
1: Okay, so first question first. I think the context in which emu have mostly come up on the podcast is the cheer up emu kid thing, which I don't remember where that started, but I remember at some point hearing or reading someone mixing up the words emo and emu and just finding the idea of teenagers becoming emu as a fashion trend really funny. And I just sort of ran it into the ground,
0: especially like with the floppy hair over their emu faces. It would be amazing.
1: Now, it's largely funny. And and our interest in emu comes from the fact that they are basically modern dinosaurs of rage and destruction. You know, if you're not familiar with emu folks, they are like 30 feet tall. They've got razor sharp adamantium talons. Many of them are jet propelled. Mm
0: -hmm. They Um, They have like 30 eyes. Each one fires a different type of ray.
1: No, none of that is true. Usually, maybe sometimes. But they are basically the closest you can get to just angry little wrath dinosaurs in the modern era. We have some personal history with this, which has led to our ongoing interest in emu. Um, So this is going to get a little bit involved. We went to college in Swannanoa, North Carolina at a place called Warren Wilson. And Swannanoa is part of Buncombe County, which has a very, very lax zoning laws, meaning you can just keep whatever the fuck animals you want in your yard mostly you see people taking advantage of this with goats and chickens. However, there was a house in Swannanoa that was occupied by a lot of our friends over the years. It was one of those houses, you know how like around colleges, there'll be one that students move into in different waves and generations. This was one of those houses. And it directly abutted a house owned by a woman who raised, I swear to God, Doberman Pinchers and emu
0: i can back this up i saw them they were there
1: it was terrifying like so the yard is just like all dobermans and emu and then there are these two lifeguard chairs in it. it is the weirdest damn thing but the emu were as emu just incredibly ill-natured and one of the things that they would do <laughs> was they'd they'd all line up along our friend's fence and drum at them in unison like emu make these weird drumming noises in their throat i can't replicate this and it's hard to describe so if you just like google emu drumming and see what you come up with it's probably going to turn out to be a euphemism for some horrible sex act, but I'm, I'm assuming so. <laughs> I'm sorry. I I don't know if it is. I just sort of assume everything is now. Anyway, emu are terrifying, and they have terrific baleful glares, and they're awful. But let's see, uh, second part of the question, emu war.
0: Okay, so the emu war that Bilby referred to, like, this is a real thing, you guys. If you want to check it out, a friend of ours, Joe Streckard, has a really great history podcast called Interesting Times, and episode 49 of that, called Destroy All Emus, is about this thing. And
1: we'll link to that in the visual companion, the as mentioned for the episode. Uh,
0: But basically, emus were this sort of terrifying pest, and so there was a bounty. Uh, The government sent people out to exterminate them and eventually they gave up because emu are fast unpredictable and effectively indestructible so if you're going to send a team of x-men against them i would say you want to get all your telekinetics and your speedsters to go after them because then you can catch the emu and imprison them in telekinetic boxes or maybe Iceman who could uh, freeze them
1: you know i'm gonna have to go with the strike team version of x-force specifically like the murder x-force actually you know i feel like cy spurrier's x-force fighting emu would be kind of amazing i don't know if they'd be that effective but it would be great
0: yeah well okay so next question
1: mig l asks on twitter costumes and uniforms aside who is the best dressed
0: x-man oh well obviously boom boom and skids from the 80s i mean the number of different colors of prints and different patterns that we're seeing there the various headwear it's perfect
1: i don't know about best but cyclops is definitely the worst
0: that's probably true but i think it really depends a lot on the artist in the era so in the late 80s where we are right now The fashion seems very grounded in its era, which is kind of great. But there are a lot of eras where it kind of feels like the fashion equivalent of Stanley writing how kids talk these days. Like, it just doesn't really seem real. And more importantly, you don't really get much about the personalities of the characters from the art.
1: Right, like in a lot of the late 90s, early aughts, there's this trend to just draw characters like they're naked or in spandex and then just draw the lines of clothing and maybe front creases on pants. And it just it looks so stupid. So that was a thing for a long time. You also get artists periodically who don't really care about how fashion works. So, for instance, there are decades where you hear about Emma Frost and how she's so fashionable and all her stuff is so tailored. And she's basically drawn in cheap, ill-fitting lingerie. Like you rarely, for instance, see artists draw Emma Frost who know how corsets are supposed to fit. Right. Which bugs me
0: so much. Um, As a more serious answer than Boom Boom and Skids, although in my heart, I know that to be true. I'm going to go ahead and say M. Monet Sainte-Croix, probably the best dressed X-Man.
1: That seems likely, at least by, you know, fashion standards. I will say, though, that the quality of X-Fashion is very era specific. And right now, it really feels like we're sort of in a renaissance of the intersection of fashion and superhero comics. Some of that, I'm pretty sure, is Kevin Wada's fault specifically. But in general, there's this whole generation of artists who are actually drawing comics and characters that feel grounded very, very much in the now. I mean, Chris Anka, Erica Henderson, Jake Wyatt, a lot of folks who are doing a really great job on that. Ooh, actually, I've got a Best Dressed X-Men pick, and mine is Quentin Quire.
0: Okay, okay, not my personal style, but I can see the logic. I am personally
1: biased significantly in this direction. The reason I eventually dressed up as Quentin Quire for Halloween is that I'd gone through several years of people assuming I was cosplaying him at conventions when I was not.
0: (laughs) Yup. Alright, so, Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is totally listener-supported. Thank you all you listeners who support us. And one of the rewards that listeners who support us at a certain level get is thanks on the air in a variety of fictional character-slash-concept voices. So take it away, angry Claremontian narrator.
1: Did you think it would be easy becoming one of the strong? That you might retain some shred of integrity of who you were before? Or did you suspect the truth? That when you submitted to Apocalypse... Where Joshua and Catherine Hoverson had once stood, only death would remain. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon. It's produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast Kaiju Cast.
0: New episodes of our show come out on Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com.
1: Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and more.
0: Our show is totally listener-supported and ad-free and is made possible by our generous Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to support the show, help us keep doing what we're doing, and become one of those fine folks, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com.
1: Next week, we will break from our regularly scheduled programming for our second annual Giant-Size Winter Special.
0: We'll have special guests, our 2015 Corbeau Awards, and finally...
1: The Sword Will Be Drawn.